How I came up with the topic title, I Don't Need God, actually was from an all-Germany Easter conference that we were at uh, this last spring. And I went to a seminar on addressing hard questions. And the person who was leading the seminar had sort of a sheet, uh, uh, wrote down questions from the students that they wanted us answers to. He had about eight different questions. And then he asked, what are the top three? And so they voted for the ones that they most wanted to to hear, and they addressed the, 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 the person leading the seminar addressed the, the top three. Well, the one that got the most votes was, how do you respond to somebody who says, I don't need God? Isn't that just a you know, conversation stopper, <laughs> where you just, it doesn't go any further? Well, what, what does one do with that? So I started thinking about that. So, okay, that would be interesting to put together as a, as a seminar topic. So I did a fair amount of thinking about that, and uh, that's the, the seminar today as a result of that. I want to have a start off by turn, turn to someone or maybe two or three people and ask yourself, do you know anyone who has told you, I don't need God? Or you're pretty sure their attitude is, I don't need God. And where do you think this comes from? Because actually when a person says, I don't need God, or has the, the belief, I don't need God, uh, a variety of things can lie behind that. So turn to someone near you, and uh, has someone asked you this, uh, told you this, or something similar? Or where do you think the person's coming from who has that kind of an attitude or idea? Okay, you could probably keep going for a while, but why don't you get my, your attention back up this way? So I'm curious to know what were some of your thoughts? Okay, maybe something bad to themselves, or they've seen other things done in the name of God or the name of Christianity and say, I don't want to have anything to do with that. Or they don't need God because they can manage their own earthly life. They don't, you know, they're only thinking the here and now, and so they can take care of their own stuff, so they don't need God. And when they say, I don't need God, what does that reflect about how they think about Christians? can't do it for themselves, they have some emotional need, uh, and hence uh, this belief in God kind of helps them cope. Whereas I'm not that needy kind of person, I don't need emotional crutch, uh, I can do quite well my, by myself. <clears throat> uh-huh. Particularly if they think of religion as being just a cultural thing. Well, you embrace these stories if they actually help you feel better. And I can actually do quite well, the idea is, without having this, this, this crutch. Other thoughts? We also heard that they um, are good people, so they don't, you know, they've done enough good and they don't need. I'm a good person. Yeah. I've met a fair number of people who think the purpose of religion, or the significant religion, is to help people become uh, nicer people, to help them be more moral. So if believing there's some being up there is watching you uh, and it helps you sort of do the right thing, then that's, that, that's fine and good, but they'll say, well, I'm a good person. I don't need to believe in God to hold to some good moral standards. Anything else? They also think Christians are Christian what? Ah, okay, so hypocrisy. So it's not so much I don't need God as I don't need your God or I don't need to be like you. Yes. Yeah, right, right. 
Anything else? Yes. Okay, so things are going smoothly for them. I mean, if Jesus, Jesus said it's harder for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And the point isn't just simply riches, but if, in fact, you've got lots of personal resources, you're bright, you're academically doing well, financially you're doing well, the temptation is to trust in yourself and to view yourself as being self-sufficient. And if that's your attitude to the idea that I need to submit to God or that I need God, uh, it's, it's just we quite naturally don't look towards God if we think we can handle things ourselves, part of our own personal arrogance. Anything else? Three general categories of what I think can lie behind it. There's a skeptic who says, I don't need God because he's not there. I don't need fairy tales. I don't need to believe in something that's not true. Um, So that can be what lies behind it. There can be what I call the antagonist. The person who's had some negative experiences, doesn't like Christianity, doesn't like religion. Look at all the wars and terrible things that have taken place in the name of God. Uh, Society would be much better off. Uh, John Lennon, just imagine... No God, no religion, what, how much better world this, this would be. <clears throat> Maybe they don't like certain doctrines, or they don't like things they see in the Bible, um, but they have this edge. Well, there's, I don't need God because I don't like what I see about God or what, what I see about the Christian faith. They also may have personally had some negative experiences. Then there's the person who's simply content with who, are, who they are. I'm doing fine. I've got better things to do on a Sunday morning than listen to a boring sermon and give money to uh, you know, this, this religious organization. Uh, I, I'm, I'm doing fine as I am. I'm a good person. I don't, I, don't, I don't need God. So those are those three categories. Let me just add, if a person says, I don't need God, you could respond by saying, do you say that because you assume God's not there? Sometimes, well, yeah, he's not there, so I don't need him. Or it could be, you could say, well, even if he is there, you're saying you don't need him. And they might think, well, if he is there, he doesn't do much. Maybe he created this world, but he doesn't do much, uh, and so I don't need him. I mean, even if he does some things, uh, even if he's there, I don't, I don't need him. But it's worthwhile to ask, uh, you say you don't need him because you assume he's not there, or is there actually, you know, so if you think, even if he's there, I don't need him. Okay, uh, a good question to ask uh, in talking to a person, I mentioned this on Wednesday, if they, if they say they used to be a Christian, a great question to ask is, do you wish the Christian faith were true? Now, if the person says, I don't need God, they're probably going to say, no, I, I, don't, I don't wish it were true. But they might say, okay, well, if it actually is true, I may not Christian, like Christians very much, but what I know about Jesus, you know, if, it, if, if that were true, you know, that, that would be nice. So, that's a great question to ask. So the person said, I, I w- do wish it were true. They used to be a Christian, but aren't anymore. Uh, that means there aren't motivational issues. There's the question of, can I really believe this? Likewise, if they say, no, I don't wish it were true. <laughs> you know, there are motivational questions and not just a matter of, 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 of arguments. <clears throat> Here are some possible responses to why do you say, I don't need God. I'm a good person. You mentioned that. I have no need to believe in life after death. So sort of uh, the fear of death and all, I, I can accept that. This is life is all there is. Uh, I, 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 I can live with that. 
Belief in God's emotional crutch, I don't need it. I have no need for fairy tales. I only believe that for which there's good evidence. Church isn't my thing. I have better things to do. God has never done anything for me. Now, that kind of statement may reflect something in their past where they really prayed quite fervently, God, please, 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 and felt God didn't come through. So God's not, God, doesn't, God doesn't come through for you. I don't want God or anyone else telling me what to do. I like my independence. There's a philosopher, Thomas Nagel, that I actually make reference to later on, who is a staunch atheist, who is very critical of materialists, but he has said quite clearly, I do not wish there to be a God. I don't want there to be a God. I want, I want to have, uh, just it's up to me what I decide to believe in the values I decide to embrace. Or I believe in something, but I don't want your God. Uh, and then look at belief in all the harm that belief in God has done. I don't need that. We don't need that. So just a whole variety of things that lie behind it. And then I sort of color-coded skeptic and antagonist and contentment, how these uh, comments are reflected in, in that. When people say they don't need God, and they start giving criticisms of the church, say, oftentimes there are things that are legitimate criticisms that we should listen to. When people have stereotypes of what Christians are like, sometimes we actually promote those stereotypes by the things that, that we say. When the person says, I don't need an emotional crutch, they likely think of the Christian faith as being people turn to it because of emotional needs. And in fact, we oftentimes present the gospel as, look at the needs you have. God can give you peace. He can help you deal with anxiety. You're having marital problems. He can help you with those problems. So belief in God is a matter of a panacea that helps solve your problems and gives you peace. And if that's what we communicate, then they, then they think, uh, well, being a Christian is a matter of emotional benefits. But if you look at the disciples, did the disciples follow Jesus for emotional benefits? No way. <laughs> they followed because they were convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, and he is the one who is going to introduce the kingdom of God. And they also recognized that in following Jesus and proclaiming the message he was proclaiming it might cost them their lives. So the, the original disciples were not following Jesus for emotional benefits, but we talk so much about that, and not very much about what God actually calls us to, God's mission in the world. Uh, so that's, that's an important thing. Uh, in terms of what's, what's attractive about the Christian faith, there's an author, Rodney Stark, who wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity, How the Obscure Marginal Jesus Movement Became the Dominant Religious Force in the Western World in a Few Centuries. Yes, why is it the Christian faith was so attractive? It wasn't just because of emotional benefits, but it was the way in which they saw Christians living out lives that were admirable and said, I, I want to be like you. There was a Roman who was writing late in the first century who wrote that he was surprised that Christians do not abandon unwanted babies. If you didn't want a baby, you would just abandon it. I mean, you can have abortion, you, just, you have the baby, you don't want it, you abandon the baby. It says not only do Christians not abandon their babies, they will actually take in abandoned babies. Now, why would anybody do that? So there's Roman, what, what, what would make these people do this? Well, it shows how much the Christian faith was actually affecting their own attitudes and the way in which they related to other people and how they, how they view human beings. And Rodney Stark says at one point there was a major plague they swept through the Roman Empire, and people of wealth typically fled the cities to try to get away from the plague. 
uh, so they wouldn't, uh, wouldn't get it. But Christians actually went in and helped people who had it, sometimes at the cost of their own lives. And he said there was a significant upswing in the percentage of people who were Christians after that because the Christian faith actually meant something. It changed people into being better people, people who really cared for others. And we think of evangelism, I think one of the most important things the church should do is to recognize we need to take seriously Jesus' call to us to love God with all our heart and then to love our neighbors ourselves. And if that's what characterizes Christians, oh, Christians, yes, they're very caring, loving people. Um, that would help us enormously. Uh, there's a sort of people get the idea of prosperity gospel, which oftentimes if you become a Christian, it'll, it'll, it won't cost you anything. Becoming a Christian doesn't cost you anything, and your business will proper, prosper, God will bless you. Uh, sometimes the more you give to me, well, God will bless you. <laughs> so you get sort of that, that kind of uh, negative reaction. Uh, let me just skip over some of the things about a prosperity gospel. Uh, uh, I'll say just something Jesus says. Um, I, I'm writing a paper on the cost of discipleship, according to Jesus. And Jesus makes this very, very strong statement in, in Luke 14. This is from the ESV. Now, great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brother, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and has come after me cannot be my disciple. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. A non-Christian reading this, I think, would respond, what kind of megalomaniac is this Jesus guy? He's calling people to actually die for him, not just simply for the cause that he's promoting, but will be willing to lay down their lives for him and renounce everything to follow him. What kind of person is this Jesus? And Christians will look at it and say, oh, you know, that cost is so, that's not, that's not what my church teaches. Uh, uh, it's, it either gets ignored, or well, that was for the original disciples. That's not for us. And it is true, Jesus is speaking not to the original disciples, he's speaking to a crowd, but he is challenging people, if you want to follow me, I mean, literally, physically, leave your homes and follow me, you need to leave everything behind and follow. So part of what he said here does have the, the, the setting of where people are actually leaving home and following Jesus personally. But it's also clear from things that Jesus says about what, what's needed to enter the kingdom of heaven. So there's a man who came to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus goes through, through some, some things in the, in, the, in the law, and he says, I've done all those things. And Jesus says, one thing you lack, sell everything you have and follow me. Now, the context here, what must I do to enter the kingdom of heaven? Not what must I do if I want to physically follow you? And Jesus is basically saying, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you need to put me first. I need to be first in your life. And Jesus knows for this man, his wealth actually is the first thing in his life. And for him, for Jesus to be first, he needs to bite the bullet and say, I'm going to get rid of this. I'm going to get rid of this idol in my life. And that's what I have to do to be able to follow you and enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, I sometimes ask myself, uh, uh, let me sit down for here. Uh, why is it that in the church, most churches, there are more women than men? I'm sure there are some exceptions. Almost all the churches I know of, the number of women in the, in the congregation are larger, a larger number than the men who are there. And a, a variety of reasons can be given, but one thing that can be given is that we, treat, we preach an emotional benefits gospel. 
where if you do this, you'll have emotional benefits. And most men are not very in touch with their feelings. <laughs> uh, they're not, we're not very, very sort of, you know, I'm, 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 they don't even acknowledge that they have these problems. And men tend to be action-oriented, work-oriented. Now, it's not that women can't be as well. So don't, don't say, say that, that, that men and women are totally different there. But men typically are attracted to something which is a challenge to them. I was around during the Jesus movement when I was in college. And it was interesting to me that the Jesus movement basically had as many men as there were women. It was equal numbers. And why was that? Well, in the Jesus movement, you were, you were laying down your life. You're, you're, you're going to follow Jesus. And it was during the Vietnam War. And you got to be sort of like you need to be a stand up and be heard and take, take, take action. During the Jesus movement, you need to stand up and, and let yourself be known as a Jesus, a Jesus freak uh, and, and, and follow him. And I think we make a big mistake in the church when we sort of put the, ch- the challenge or the cost under the carpet. Whereas I think most people recognize that if something is worth a great deal, it's worth it. It's, it cost is, is, I mean, if it costs a lot, that's fine because it's worth it. And when it costs something to follow Jesus, but nonetheless it gives meaning to your life, that is really worth it. In fact, studies about human happiness indicate that one of the most important elements in human happiness is believing that your life was meaningful, not just for you personally, but in the broader sense of the good. So a person can have a fairly hard life and said, I did what was right, and I gave myself to promoting what is right and what is good. They can have a deep satisfaction with their life. Whereas if they live for personal happiness, they don't have a deep satisfaction with their life, and they're less happy. I mean, happiness is not just the feelings you have, but the sort of sense of satisfaction you have with who you are and what you're doing. And if you're giving your life to something which is important, that gives a great deal of satisfaction. So it's not just even in terms of human psychology. People who are giving themselves to Jesus, believing that what he's calling us to is the most important thing we can do, and his mission is the greatest thing we could possibly do. There's a great deal of satisfaction in following God and doing that. And they seem to make a huge mistake when we try to sort of put the costs down on a low shelf and basically say, here are the benefits um, that, that can reach people who are really suffering and, you know, need. Uh, and I'm always encouraged when I find somebody who's in the pit, somebody who's a criminal, turns around and becomes, becomes a follower of Jesus. That's wonderful. But from the outside, people can get the impression that, well, if you're, if, you're, if you're in the pits, then you turn to God. But that's the only reason why you believe in God. And no, that's not why we should be believing in God. We should be believing in God because that's where we find ourselves and in serving him, we find ourselves. So a little bit of a sermon there. Uh, <clears throat> also, people have the impression that Christians really don't care. The odd thing is if you're following Jesus, non-Christians just say, wow, these Christians really care about other people. But I think the widespread opinion in the U.S. of non-Christians is that Christians don't care about needy people. And part of that because of the politics and the general not be willing to give to money to you know, social causes, uh, poverty, that kind of thing. Uh, my own perspective is that our problem is not that we spend too much on you know, human welfare kinds of things, but we don't spend on things that really make a difference. It gets wasted. It doesn't really help people. And sometimes giving people money actually helps, hurts them in the long run because you need to do things that actually help them get back on, on, on their feet again. But there's sort of a knee-jerk reaction amongst a lot of Christians that, well, we shouldn't be giving money to social projects. No, you're supposed to care about people. You know, why not? And they know we're against abortion. At least most Christians are against abortion. 
but are we really for babies? I mean, when babies are born and they have these needs, are we for them? Are we more consistently pro-life than just simply pro-life before birth? So I think we need to be reflective about that or how we view uh, immigrants. Uh, Phil Tuttle in his first uh, talk, I was really kind of surprised how strong he came in. We, the Jews were immigrants. They, 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 they immigrated down to Egypt. Uh, uh, our country is immigrants. Uh, the, the gospel is full of immigrants. Remember how you were treated. Don't treat people badly who come to you. And so there's so much within scripture that says we ought to have a love for the people who are coming uh, out of need and reach out to them. But anyway, without getting too political, nonetheless, they have this, 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 this actually strange idea that Christians don't care. When it actually comes down to things like how many people give blood or how many people volunteer, certain people, the Christians actually do so more than most people do. So they have this idea that Christians aren't caring, but if you look at their actual actions, oftentimes they're much more caring than their secular neighbors are in terms of things they do. I mean, so it's, the story isn't totally bad about us. But people typically don't see the things we're doing one-on-one. -on -one. They see the things that we do in terms of politics, and we have a lot of baggage that we have to live with. Now let me turn to the category of contentment. The person's not open to change. There was a book that came out uh, a while back by two InterVarsity staff who are really quite gifted evangelists. And the title of the book was, uh, I Once Was Lost. The basic thesis of the book was we need to think about evangelism of helping people get past thresholds that they're currently facing. A threshold down the road is that of becoming a Christian, but people aren't ready to cross that threshold until they've crossed other thresholds. So we need to ask, where are people and help them with the threshold? And one of the thresholds is moving from being closed to change to being open to change. That's a really hard one. I mean, if a person is, is closed to change, how do you get them to take seriously the Christian faith or to listen to it? Uh, it's not easy at all. Uh, there's considerable cost if you're in a secular community of becoming a Christian. In some communities, becoming a Christian actually sort of helps you socially. And, uh, so if you're in the Bible Belt, <clears throat> it may actually help you socially becoming a Christian. Um, but if not, there'd be considerable cost. There was a fourth-year grad student in astronomy at Santa Cruz whose sister had become a Christian, and he started coming to some of our, our uh, grad, grad fellowship Bible studies. Early in his fifth year, I got together with him and discovered he's really thinking quite seriously about the faith, and I asked him, is there anything that is a barrier to you in thinking about the faith? I may have mentioned this on Wednesday. He said that, that, the, that what people think of me, uh, people will think less of me. And in fact, people would think less of him. And I almost guarantee you that when he became a Christian, there are fellow grad students, PhD students in astronomy who would, in their own thinking, was I thought he was smarter than that. So your sort of estimation of the person's intelligence uh, goes down. Just even apart from that, if you're content with where you're at, I mean, why should you make any changes? Okay, there's some emotional benefits, but I'm doing okay. So I don't need to make this big shift of uh, sort of declaring myself to, to be a Christian. So the question is, how can we help people come to actually sort of want change and desire change in their own lives? One thing one can do to help out with this is to be transparent. The person may say, I'm fine, everything's fine with me. Likely that's not completely true. <laughs> I mean, it's not true for any of us that everything is fine with us. We all have our concerns, the things that, that, that we, we, we struggle with. And if you as a Christian are honest with your struggles, your non-Christian friend is much more likely to say, well, here's something I'm struggling with. And when they're being honest about the things they're struggling with, that also opens them up 
to thinking more seriously about the Christian faith. Because they reckon, okay, yeah, that's not the case that everything is fine for me. Maybe my marriage isn't going as well as I thought. Or there's, you know, there are issues that, that, that are there. I have a, a friend who is a professor of law at the University of Michigan. Uh, who he, he and his wife were going through some significant struggles. And he was talking to one of his fellow uh, professors, their colleagues at the law school. And he was saying, our marriage is, is really struggling. And the person he was talking to said, well, our marriage is basically on the rocks. <laughs> he never would have talked about that if, if my friend wasn't honest about the struggles which he had. Now, so just, just simply say, look at where you're at. Don't try to paint yourself as being better than you are. That actually becomes attractive because the non-Christian can say, okay, well, you're kind of like me. <laughs> and you're finding some help in this. Maybe this could help me. But if they view you as a person, you don't have problems. You're goody two-shoes. Everything is fine for you. They don't relate to you. So actually, getting to know them helps them see and be more honest about the struggles they have. And also can give them a vision for being different than what they're at, than what they are. I know I have a couple different occasions said to non-Christian and that something I don't like about myself is how easily I'm sarcastic. My wife was in the back, smiles. She knows I can be sarcastic. And it does in that case that I was always kind of a sarcastic person. Sort of a liability of going to a good university is you sort of, sarcasm gets cultivated. So like these witty cutdowns of other people is really a lot of fun. And if you're smart and smart people, you can do that quite effectively. And you enjoy doing it. You know, The Simpsons is popular because of all these cutdowns. <laughs> so we kind of like that. But I said, I kind of picked up that when I was in university, but it doesn't, I don't like what it does to me. It doesn't make myself a pure, better person. It makes my, it makes my, my inner self darker and not the kind of person that I want to be. And by mentioning that to the person, the person might have thought, oh, I, that, that's fine, being sarcastic and all that, that's just fine. But if they think about it, okay, they can begin to get a vision for a life that's a little bit different than the life that they have. Or if you can get to have them look at Jesus, as I mentioned on Wednesday, they'll see a life that's quite a bit, lots, much different than what their life is like. And they get a vision for what their life could be. So there needs to be a recognition that here's where I am, but I really don't like where I am. Or I don't, there's some negative things about me. We typically put all the problems outside. So people basically say, the problem is not me, the problem is the other person. When there's a marital problem, the temptation is to say, it's my spouse who's the problem. <laughs> Almost all of the problem on both sides. <laughs> so we put the problem out there rather than recognize the problem in ourselves. And if they can begin to see some of the problems in themselves, part of becoming a Christian is repentance, and they need to see that I'm not the kind of person that I ought to be. There's really a deep-seated, self-centered orientation which is in me. And even though I can rise and sort of be a nice person and be nice to my wife, I'm not always nice to my wife. <laughs> Uh, so I, there, there's repentance, which is needed, plus there's a recognition that I need to be different than what I am. And when a person is open to change, there is fertile ground for a person's becoming a Christian. But as long as they're content with where they're at and don't have any desire to change, they're not going to change. If you watch on TV these uh, psychological guru, get in touch with your inner child, the people who sign up for these conferences and these weekend symposium kinds of things, they're people who want to change. Right? <laughs> they're very open to change. Uh, and there are people around us who are very open to change. But a lot of people around us are not open to change. And the question is, how can we, how can we help them uh, with that? I said, encourage them to look at Jesus. Now, let me turn to the people who have some animosity, dislike of Christianity. 
they can have negative experience with Christians. There is a lot of hypocrisy in the church. Uh, and when you get comments from non-Christians, oftentimes one of the first things you'll hear is, well, Christians tend to be hypocrites. Or they know these street preachers, these, these tele- televangelists, who are then caught in a sexual scandal. Or it turns out they're pocketing all this money that they're, that they're pleading for on the television show, and, and they're, they're just personally wealthy. Uh, it's easy for people to become very cynical about that. And sometimes you find major Christian leaders who uh, turns out they've been having a sexual affair with someone uh, and blows up. Ah, look at so-and-so. He was supposed to be. Uh, so you get, you get, that's just, it does a lot of damage. You get that negative kind of experience. I, don't know, I think I mentioned last time when a person says, I don't want to talk about it, I'll, I'll say, well, uh, sounds like you've had some negative experiences. Well, listening to people in terms of what their experience has been like is very helpful. And oftentimes we'll say, yeah, that, that is a good criticism of Christians. Um, but if you're, when you talk about those kinds of things, you're getting at some of the issues that drive people away from the Christian faith. The exclusivity of the gospel is big. A couple of years ago, I was at an all-Germany Easter conference and was doing a seminar, and I had the students initially break up into groups of three. There are about six groups of three. And I asked, what are the three biggest barriers that you see to, to your people around you aren't Christians, barriers to their becoming Christians? And to my amazement, all six of the group came up with the three same things. They phrased it in different ways. One was the problem of evil and suffering. One was science and faith and how they relate to it. And the other was the exclusivity of the gospel. How can you claim to have the truth, and how do you claim you have to embrace this truth to actually regain relationship with God? Uh, topic of hell is, uh, is, is, is a big one. Uh, sexuality is a huge, huge topic these days. And as Christians, we need to have sensitivity and empathy for people who struggle with this. But at the same time, we need to stick with what Scripture actually says. And it's a, that I would go a long time on sort of that, that, that topic. So my, one of my topics I mentioned will be on why does God want to limit our sexuality. I'm not going to be specifically looking at homosexuality. It'll be sort of sexuality in general, though I know that in the Q&A that, that topic will arise. Uh, for some people, it's issues like God commanding the Israelites to wipe out the people that they're coming to. Uh, actually, I'm writing a paper on what about the Canaanites. And it's really a pretty complicated thing. I'm convinced that God was not commanding genocide. If you think of genocide as the aim is to wipe out a people. God's aim was to purge the land of the pagan influence. And if people left, that's fine. A couple years ago, there was a DNA study done on a Canaanite tomb in, in Lebanon. And amazingly, they discovered that current-day Lebanese are largely Canaanite. What that means is that not just a few Canaanites fled, but lots of Canaanites fled. So the aim is not to wipe them out, genocide, but to purge the land of the pagan presence. God said, if you don't do that, then you will become like them. And if you become like them then the judgment which I'm bringing on them because of what they're doing, which is so wrong, I'll bring on you if you do what they do. And God knows for well that will actually happen. And for the longest time, that's what happened. They didn't wipe them all out. They were still there. And repeatedly, they were following after pagan gods, and God brought judgment on the people of Israel for, 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 for that. But also to recognize that the, the, the severe command that he gave there was actually for the good of all the nations. 
God's plan and desire was that the Israel would be a light to the nations, that they would be living according to God's rules, and living according to God's rules, they could be a beacon of light to others around so they could see God, what God's, God's ways are like. Now, Israel largely failed to do that, but the Messiah, the suffering servant, is a, is a, is a light to the Gentiles, and Jesus is the suffering servant. He is a light to the Gentiles, but it's not just Jesus who is a light to the Gentiles, but it's the new Israel. We, as a church, are to be a light to the nations. And hence, God has this huge desire to actually redeem people more generally, and that cannot be accomplished if there's not purity within Israel. And hence, there is this severe command that you must not tolerate this, which is when it's there. I'll go on. But anyway, that's, that's, a, it's a, yeah, that's a big topic. Uh, for skeptics, let me say a few things that are helpful in relating to skeptics. One is that there's good reason to think that materialism is false. The philosophical term is naturalism, the idea that we live in a purely physical world, everything ultimately is physics. And there are a lot of people in the university context who believe really it's all physics. Uh, but there's very good reason for believing, no, that's not the case. But before I get to that, here's a sort of the a very bra- uh, sort of a blunt statement by Francis Crick, Nobel Prize winner, who, who, showed, who showed what the structure of the DNA was like. He writes, you, your joys and your sorrows, your memories and your ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will are in fact no more than the behavior of vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. Who you are is nothing but a pack of neurons. Okay, well, first of all, I don't, I, I'm, I don't need God, but if I don't need God, I don't believe in God, then is this what you believe in? You ought to hope this is false. This is a very, very bleak view of who you are, but actually it's a very direct, actually, if you're nothing but physics, you really are nothing but neurons. In fact, there are a fair number of atheists who say you as a person, the subject you think you are, it doesn't actually exist. There's sort of a stage of conscious awareness, and different things come onto the stage of conscious awareness, but there's no self behind it directing the show. What you choose to have for lunch, one part of your brain dictates that. Try and understand what I'm saying now, another part of your brain. But there is no self. There is no you. Do you have any free will? Uh, come to that and say, no, you don't have any, any free will. But anyway, uh, Thomas Nagel, who I mentioned earlier, is a staunch atheist, very well-known philosopher and philosophy of mind at the New York University. He wrote a book in 2012 published by Oxford University Press. Mind and Cosmos was the main part of the title, but the subtitle was the grammar. Why the materialist neo-Darwinian conception of nature is almost certainly false. This created quite a wave uh, with amongst atheists, because most atheists I know are convinced that naturalism, materialism is true. And that's part of why you can dismiss any religious belief, because religions typically believe in things beyond what you can see. Uh, and there's, there's nothing beyond what you can see. So most atheists, what lies behind their conviction that atheism is certainly true is this belief that naturalism is true. And here you have a prominent atheist philosopher who says it's almost certainly false. And his argument for that is pretty simple. Let me just give the example of the feeling of pain. Uh, When you have a feeling of pain, what is the feeling of pain? Now, if you're a neuroscientist, or you're simply looking at sort of what happened, where's the pain? If you know what's happening with neurons, okay, but where's the pain? So neurons are firing a bigger way, but these neurons aren't feeling pain. And there's pain behavior. You know, the wind's saying, ah, and they're saying, ah, and you're speaking and saying things. 
But where's the pain? It doesn't fit within the materialist view of the world. So your feeling of pain must actually just be the behavior of pain or neurons firing a particular way. But a lot of atheists even will grant, no, that's, that can't be the case. Surely there's more to a feeling of pain than simply pain behavior. And I, I'm convinced that when I feel pain, it's not just the pain behavior. I actually, there is something, the feeling that I have. And it's so obvious that when people uh, uh, deny it, it just seems, you know, how, how can you possibly deny that? So actually, that's good reason for believing that materialism is false. I could go on a little more about that, but free will. I met one time with a, uh, an atheist student group at UC Santa Cruz. I knew a grad student who was sort of an advisor to them, sort of a leader for this group. They called themselves the Secular Student Alliance. There were seven undergrads there and the grad student. And one thing I did during our time together, I asked them how many of them believed they had free will. The grad student did not believe he had free will. And one of the seven others believed they don't have free will. The other six did. In fact, many atheist clubs call themselves the Free Thinkers Association. But if you're an atheist, none of your thought is free. All of it's determined by the past. So if you're an atheist, you can't be a free thinker by your own worldview. You're not really free. So there's sort of an irony about that. And most atheists, most people really want to believe that I am the one who's coming up with these ideas. It's not just dictated by past physical states of my brain. So there's significant motivation in believing that naturalism is false and wanting to believe that I actually do have some influence in my life. Now, I'm not saying that everything you do, you're free about. I think most decisions I make, if a person knew the state of my brain, et cetera, I, that's the only decision I would make. But there need to be points where I could go this direction, could go that direction, those add up over time. And I am responsible for those, and I believe we, it's very important that we actually have some, some freedom of the will in that. But if you're an atheist, you, you can't believe it. Moral right and wrong. I said earlier that moral right and wrong is important in personal happiness. But if you're an atheist, the only things which are real about values are that people value certain things. There is no value out there in the world. It's just simply people value certain things. And if that's what value is, if 99% of people value one thing and 1% values another, well, this 99% value this and 1% values that. You can't say the 99% are right. Even something as basic as parents caring for their children. Most parents care for their children even if they don't show it very well. But I suspect there may be 1% of parents who don't care for their children. What makes them wrong from the standpoint of an atheist? So if all you have are the things which as human beings we're naturally inclined towards, well, not all human beings are naturally inclined towards that. And what makes you think that the majority are right? Or we're social animals, but not all human beings are all that sociable. And what makes the sociable ones the right ones? But it's very important that you believe you're doing what is right, not just simply what you happen to value or what your society happens to value, to have satisfaction in it. So you have the irony that if a person embraces naturalism, the, the worldview that is nothing but physics, uh, they're undercutting their own personal happiness, <laughs> if they actually believe it. There was one time when Bertrand Russell, I think, was asked, uh, he was a very strong protest of the war in Vietnam. I said, why do you care so much about the war in Vietnam? In your own worldview, human beings are just biological entities. Why should you care so much about biological entities over there in Vietnam? (laughs) And his response was that it was more important for him that he care than he'd be rational. Now, he actually did care very deeply about that, but when it came to it, he wasn't going to give that up, even if he couldn't justify it, because that was so important to him. Given that's important, how, why is it important? 
bringing God back in the picture actually can make sense of our belief in moral right and wrong. Uh, in 2012, uh, my wife Janet, who's in back there, was, was uh, serving the internet and came across an, uh, an article uh, on CNN entitled, Prominent Atheist Blogger Becomes Catholic. So I was curious and looked it up. It was a woman named Leah Labresco who was writing for an atheist blog site. But this was her last blog, her last blogging on that site because she was declaring that she was no longer an atheist. She converted to the Christian faith, was becoming Catholic. And in the article, the, she's quoted as saying, I believe that the moral law wasn't just a platonic truth, not just something written in the cosmos, uh, uh, but it wasn't just a platonic truth. I actually believed it was some kind of person as well as truth. So values ultimate rest in a person, God, not just simply in some moral thing written in the universe. And when she thought about that, where, where the answer that lies, she turned to the Christian faith. And came to believe that's the direction where it may lie. So for a non-Christian to have an atheist blogger who realizes, no, there really is right and wrong, and it lies in a person, not just in abstract ideas, and then turns to the Christian faith can be quite significant. Also, there's actually quite harmony between science and the biblical faith. People oftentimes assume that as science explained more and more, that left less and less for God to do. There's a story of Pierre Laplace. Pierre Laplace, uh, uh, actually, go going back, Isaac Newton. Isaac Newton believed that, the, uh, that, that God every once in a while needs to adjust the orbits of the planets to keep them stable. He thought that because he recognized that planets will actually have a gravitational effect on each other. So there's a gravitational pull of planets on each other, and that's going to affect the orbits of the planets. And he thought that could destabilize the orbit, so God every once in a while needs to adjust them. Well, it seems, uh, actually 100 years later, it was shown that Isaac Newton was wrong, that God doesn't need to do that. There are effects of the planets on each other, but over time, those effects cancel each other out. So the orbit of the Earth actually is a, a, technically a chaotic system. If you go very far out, you don't know where within this band the Earth is going to be in its orbit because it just becomes too complicated to calculate it. But these effects cancel each other out over time, so you're, the Earth actually is a relatively stable uh, orbit. So Isaac Newton was wrong. If he'd been right, that would have been an order of nature miracle. Miracles that God needs to do simply to keep the, the world functioning the way it does. Uh, I heard once heard a preacher uh, say, science has been unable to account for cellular differentiation. The question is, how do cells become the right kind of cells in the right place at the right time? So you probably know that after conception, there's a cluster of stem cells, sort of generic cells. But as they multiply at some point, a stem cell divides and doesn't become two more stem cells, but becomes a different kind of cell, maybe two of the same kind. Well, how is it that cells become the right kind of cells the right place at the right time? That's a fascinating question. This preacher was saying, uh, science is unable to account for it, so therefore God must do it. Well, if God does it, God's doing a massive number of miracles because basically he's turning genes on and off in every single living organism as it's developing so that the genes become the, the cells become the right cells, the right place, the right time. If that were true, that would be an order of nature miracle. I think there's good reason to believe from the success of science that God doesn't do order of nature miracles, that he's created a world which is exquisitely ordered and he doesn't need to do things simply to sustain that order. <laughs> 
He doesn't need to do things to keep the earth moving around the sun the way it does. He doesn't need to do things so that cells divide and uh, DNA works as it does. He's created a world within which that works as this, this wonderful system. Well, the assumption that's made by atheists, if in fact science hasn't discovered God and it's looking all around, then God must not exist. And my contention is no. It shows that there may not be order of nature miracles, but after all, God is a wise and orderly God. He can create an exquisitely ordered universe. It says nothing about whether God does specific point miracles, whether he does miracles at specific points for specific purposes. So the success of science gives good reason to believe there may be no order of nature miracles, but actually is silent with respect to whether or not specific point miracles take place. And when you look at miracles in the Bible, all the recorded miracles in the Bible are specific point miracles. We're never told that God has to do something to keep the weather system functioning. I mean, we, do, we are told that God, God is behind the weather, and so God has talked about bringing storms and that kind of thing. But it's not the case that there's miracles where God has to do something to keep the natural order functioning the way in which it normally does. So science, the success of science is actually neutral in respect to it. The consequence of that is that if one asks have specific point miracles taken place, the resurrection of Jesus or other miracles, that has to be answered by historical investigation. Science doesn't answer that for us. And many, many people assume, well, science tells us there's no God. Actually, science doesn't tell us that. Science tells us we live in an exquisitely ordered universe, but we believe in a God who knows all the possibilities, and why should we assume God wouldn't make an exquisitely ordered universe? And if he has, that doesn't tell us that he's not going to do miracles for specific purposes at specific times. That has to be addressed historically. So that comes back to the whole question of the evidence of the resurrection. When I give a talk on the evidence of the resurrection, I like to do two talks if I can. The first one will be the historical case for the resurrection. And the second talk that I'll give, I entitle, But Dead Men Don't Rise. Because <laughs> people will say, no matter how good your historical case may be, and no matter how difficult it is to give a naturalist explanation of the evidence that we have, nonetheless, say Jesus rose that the dead can't be the right answer because dead men don't rise. If they're dead dead, they stay dead. So that raised the philosophical question, OK, you're assuming that miracles cannot happen. Why? I think most people, when they assume that miracles cannot happen, assume that because they think science tells us it can't happen. But science actually doesn't tell us that it can't happen. In fact, when looks at science and looks at the world around us, there is an apparent fine-tuning of the laws of physics that make life possible. Stephen Hawking has been quite, quite direct and upfront in saying there really is an, ex an incredible, exquisite fine-tuning of the basic physical constants that make life possible. Now, that doesn't mean he believes in God. He was an atheist. But rather, so the answer is all possible universes are real, that every possible universe gets actualized. And for us to be here, we have to be one of these very rare universes where the physical constants permit life. Okay, but notice he acknowledges that the world we live in seems incredibly fine-tuned. And from a Christian standpoint, well, it's no great surprise. God is a God who created a fine-tuned universe. There may be other universes. The Bible doesn't exclude that possibility. But we're not driven to the speculation that all possible universes must be actualized, or they must include ones like ours. And hence, from a science standpoint, there's reason to, to say the Christian faith actually gives a much more satisfying answer to that kind of question than the atheist has. Let me finally say that there's evidence, uh, uh, there is evidence for specific miracles. Then there's experience of God's presence and providence. 
This is actually important for most people to become Christians. I had a good friend who uh, we got together initially through a person who had gone to undergrad with university with him. She called me and said, this friend of mine is in the music school at the University of Michigan, where I was working with the university. Could you get together with him? So I got together with him. So I, I said, called him and said, would you like to get together? I'd be glad to treat you to breakfast. And he could have said, said thanks, but no thanks. But he said, OK. So we got together. And in that conversation, I found out that he, he said, I neither believe nor disbelieve. I'm agnostic. Uh, I, I used to be a group Catholic, but I, I don't have any beliefs uh, anymore. We actually become very good friends, and he eventually became a Christian. Uh, but when he became a Christian, it was at a point where he was just about ready to graduate. And I'd gotten together with him, and he said he'd gone to Mass the last couple weeks. It was either that Sunday or the Sunday before. He said that he, the, the priest was reading from the Gospels, and he said, it seemed to me that God was speaking to me. So I've decided to follow him. Well, personal experience is important. Belief in God is not just a philosophical position. It's not just buying into a philosophical system. It's actually experiencing God, having a relationship with God. His experience was not a dramatic experience. He wouldn't say, there is no way I can account for this feeling that God was speaking to me in terms of natural explanations. But what he needed was not just philosophical arguments or reasons. He needed some sense that God was actually reaching out to him. And I think God will do that for people. The person asked me, will God demonstrate himself to me? And what are you looking for? If you're looking for God to do some miracle that could not possibly be explained in any natural terms, God could do that for you, but I don't think he will. One, if that's what you need, you're probably not very close to becoming a Christian to begin with. But if, in fact, you ask God, reveal yourself to me. In some way, show yourself to me in a way where you're not just an idea, a possibility, but where I can sense that you, in fact, are reaching out to me. And I think God will honor that kind of a prayer. So in just talking to people, encourage people to look for God's reaching out to them in some way, because experience does matter. Being a Christian is hardly ever just a matter of the ideas or the mind. It's, it's the experience that we have, which are also important. And so that becomes part of uh, the, 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 system, the, the picture. Okay, I have a few minutes left. Questions you might have. I've covered a lot of ground this morning, so I apologize for that. <clears throat> Janet. I just have a comment on the section before this with the arguments against um, people don't, things that people don't like. That a lot of those things, including Christians being hypocrites or the church being a hypocrite and the other things, it doesn't take very much knowledge on their part for them to say they don't like. Maybe you saw a TV show. And you don't have to be afraid of asking them questions about that that you can't understand because you'll get to, I get to, a point pretty soon on where they just have this feeling or this you know, sense that Christians are hypocrites and a lot of it's politics. And it doesn't matter if it doesn't make sense, right? If they're against it, it's worth uh, letting them talk about it and um, offering them a different point of view, maybe even later, you know? Maybe even if they talk for quite a while, they'll turn and say, why are you asking? Or where are you? What do you do? Yeah, yeah. So was there a question in that? No. <laughs> yeah, when a person talks about hypocrisy, uh, uh, I'll say, look, in becoming a Christian, it doesn't make you a perfect person. 
You don't, there's not sort of an about face where all your habits and personality and those kinds of things disappear. God has made a fundamental change in your life where his spirit has come into you. But at the same time, now you have sort of foot in two worlds. You have the foot in the world where you are, in fact, a son or a daughter of God. And his spirit is with you and he's giving, there's the power there to actually make changes in your life. But at the same time, you have the same patterns that were there before. And it shouldn't be too surprising that Christians, even genuine Christians, oftentimes do things which are shameful, which are contrary to what Christ has called us to. Uh, and uh, as much as I, I sort of uh, hate to say, say it, the, 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 that's, that's true. I mean, looking at the Crusades, the, some of the people who went on the Crusades went for adventure and, you know, plunder. Uh, but I think I'm sure there are Christians who went on the Crusades who really felt they were honoring God and trying to deliver the, the holy city of Jerusalem from the, from the Muslims and being able to rescue the Christians who were there who were treated as second-class citizens. Uh, but it's still a bad idea. Uh, so Christians have their problems just like everybody else does. Yes? Yeah, there are people who, in the upper echelons of academic reputation, who are strong Christians. Uh, Francis Collins, Nobel Prize winner in, geneti- in, in genetics, is a strong Christian. He actually became a Christian as, as an adult. Uh, so there are people like that. Or in philosophy, there are Christian philosophers who are very highly regarded uh, within the academic community. In fact, I remember a number of years ago reading an article by an atheist and it's of an academic, it wasn't a philosophy journal, but an academic journal within which he was uh, saying, shame on you, fellow atheist philosophers. How can it be that when the philosophy is the only, the only field of study within the U.S. where genuine religious faith is taken seriously? Uh, and he said, if, you, uh, if your atheism is based on arguments that you had or reasons that you had when you are in graduate school, there's a good chance that your atheism is philosophically unjustified. The sort of backhanded compliment saying the arguments that you had when you were in graduate school, Christians have actually given good responses to that. And they're very top-notch Christian philosophers who are very highly regarded within the philosophical community. Uh, and it's, it's, it's very encouraging to me to see that. The Society of Christian Philosophers has uh, some very, very well-known people. I'm a member of the, I'm part of both of that and the Evangelical Philosophical Society. But it's very encouraging to me to see the high caliber of work that's being done by Christians within the field of philosophy. And there's very also very high caliber work being done by people within the sciences who, who are Christians. So there, there are Christians out there who are doing very, very good work. Sometimes they're not nearly as visible as they should be, so that people know they're a Christian. Like Francis Collins is, is, is very visible. Uh, but in fact, there are people out there who can have an influence. And it's, I think it's crucially important that we strive to have an influence in the academic world, the university world, because actually many of our leaders are being trained and shaped by with their experiences there. And it's, it's vitally important that, in fact, we have a presence there, a credible presence, 
and we can. Yeah, there, there's a, uh, well, let me see just, for a person like that, don't give him a book. A book will likely just go on the shelf. Uh, give him a, a, an article, maybe a chapter from a book or an essay that has been read, written, written, something fairly short. And say, I came across this, and I think you might like it. So you need to look at it and say, how would he respond likely? Uh, if you think, okay, this, this is something that would be up his alley, uh, give that to him and encourage him to read it. Likely, if you contact him a couple weeks later and you say, have you read it? He'll say no, okay? <laughs> but then you can say, I really would like to know what you think. And there's a good chance that with our second time around, he will actually look at it. You don't keep pressing on it. But if he does like it, then there's an openness for him to read other things by that same author. So C.S. Lewis had that effect on quite a few people. They read something by C.S. Oh, I like this. And even though they didn't have Christian, other Christian contacts, they like what C.S. Lewis wrote, so they read other things by C.S. Lewis. And so that could be a strategy for reaching out to him. If I were with him, uh, I would ask, you know, why do you, why do you say that? And it might be, look at all the terrible things that have been done in the name of Christianity. And I'll say, yeah, there have been terrible things done in the name of Christianity. But the fact of the matter is, if a person has a strong worldview, that is a powerful motivator. If the values behind that are bad, then they can do terrible things out of that motivation. If the values are good, they can do wonderful things. If there's not a worldview that motivates behavior, they'll probably only be moderately bad, only moderately good. But when people are exceptionally good and sacrificing for things, it's usually because there's some, there's some strong worldview motivation behind that. The fact of the matter, the Christian faith is a powerful motivator, and we need to go back to Jesus. When, it looks at, when one looks at Jesus, actually Jesus gives the basis for what is, what is marvelously good. Almost all the humanitarian organizations that we have in the West had the roots in strong Christian religious convictions. You go to places uh, like uh, India and, and elsewhere where, say, Buddhism or Hinduism, uh, where the world is a maya, it's an illusion, a world of suffering, there's not a strong motivation to try to alleviate that suffering. And you don't have the same kind of developments there. So actually, we ought to have great gratitude for the Christian faith that what we admire about Western values is really Christian values. So secular humanist values really are largely Christian values with a few changes mixed in there. But when they don't see that, they think Christianity has done all the bad things and don't realize that what they themselves value, what they themselves appreciate, is due to the Christian influence in, in the West. Okay, our time has passed. Let me just pray for us and we'll have lunch. But before I do that, let me mention there's a clipboard out there. If you'd like to have the PowerPoint, put your name and email address down. If you're here on Wednesday, you don't need to put it again. I'll, 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 I'll send it to you. And also there's some information about uh, what, what I do if you want to, what my wife and I do if you want to pick that up. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you for the fact that you've privileged us to be able to serve you to serve you in this world, and that what you are about is the most important thing, the most important thing, and that you want to bring people back to you, 
so that they can have their own lives restored, not living for themselves, but living for you. Lord, uh, thank you for the friends and relationships that we have. Lord, help us to pray for them, as I mentioned on Wednesday. Lord, because ultimately, their coming to know you will be a work of your spirit in their hearts and their lives. But Lord, we know that you can use us. Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom and listening to you and be used by you as we share our faith to others who don't know you yet. Amen.